it's amazing to like think that we could just be like a speck of dust on this huge, big worldwide project. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a passion for animal conservation. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, and conservation organizations. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, anyone who can help me in my mission of connecting my people to animals through their people. Join me on my raw safari. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the podcast that is about to teach you the word Trinterview, the Rasafari podcast. Okay, y'all, I have a confession to make. Trinterview is a word that I just invented, but that's because that's what this week's episode is. All right, so I had an idea. If you've listened for a while now, you know the name Colleen Adams. And um, if you haven't listened and you're on Instagram and you know Zookeeper Colleen, that's who I'm talking about. Colleen is a keeper at the Cincinnati Zoo and uh, has become a very good friend, has been on the podcast a couple of times, and uh, has cast a a large shadow even on the episodes that she's not on because a lot of the concepts that she brings up have come up in other episodes. She's introduced me to a lot of the other people that have been on the podcast and a lot of people that she didn't introduce me to still happen to know her and love her because she is wonderful. So I thought, what if I had Colleen co-host an interview with me? But once we got in the room, it wasn't quite as formal as that. You see, Colleen is a great interview subject as well as a good co-host of interviews. So um, she started talking to our guest and then started getting questions from me as well. And then she also asked me some questions and our guest asked some questions. And in the end, it just became kind of three people talking and no one really in charge. Um, and thus the term Trinterview was born. So now you can keep that word in your back pocket for all of the times that you are randomly interviewing somebody with a co-host and then it turns into a kind of three people talking. Okay, this isn't really going to help most of you out, but I'm sticking with it. Trinterview. I love it. So yeah, I'm really excited to get into all of that, um, but let me do some quick housekeeping. Make sure you're following along at Ross Safari on Instagram, Facebook, and uh, Twitter. At Ross Safari Pod uh, is, is where I'm at on TikTok. Uh, yeah, and and um, if you want to support the pod, patreon.com slash rossafari, or go buy some really awesome merch at rossafari.com. There's other stuff there like, oh, heck, I don't know what a podcast website would have. I don't know. I kind of know what rossafari is, so I don't really have to go check out my website very much. Probably some cool stuff, though. Yeah, probably. But enough about all of that. I am so excited to bring you my interview with Tammy Ware today. Now, Tammy is an interpretive keeper at the Cincinnati Zoo, and um, she has a really cool path to this career. She did not just start out life as a zookeeper, um, but instead she went back to school. She went to America's Teaching Zoo, uh, where you, you've heard from them before and are going to hear from them again on this podcast, and spent some time at the South Carolina Aquarium and Moat Marine Lab, which, again, is just a great place that that you know you've heard a lot of episodes from already and then when she got to Cincinnati she was on the team that worked with baby Fiona so you're going to hear some of that and then it's like we hit all of the highlights just naturally in this conversation. We talk about Rico the porcupine and how famous he got. We talk about Lucille, the bear cat that I love so much. We talk about Mo and Lightning, the amazing sloths. And we go really deep on what happened when Mo and Lightning's baby was stillborn. We talk about crew science stuff. And if you don't know what that means, you will. Um, and then, man, we get, we get deep. Not only do we talk about the sloth stuff, but we talk about humility 
about how keepers can feel one way about their animals and how the public can feel another way. We deal with compassion fatigue and even talk about approaches to trauma. Honestly, this episode is for everyone, but I really hope that anyone who is a keeper in my audience not only enjoys this, but shares it with other keepers. There are a lot of nuggets from two very wise keepers in this episode that I think are really, really worth sharing with other keepers. So I'm really excited to get to it, but first, an ad. Today's episode is brought to you by Daydreamers Studios. Do you have stories and expertise to share with the world? Have you ever thought about starting your own podcasts? There's no better time to start than now with the help of a trusted production partner. Daydreamer Studios is a full-service production company that takes all the stress off your plate. You can focus on creating engaging content while they focus on recording, editing, audio engineering, hosting, and publishing on 22 platforms. Log into the advanced remote system with one click and the Daydreamer team will be on the other end ready for you to record everything you have to say. Owned and operated by Daydreamer Network, Daydreamer Studios continues on the company's mission to empower storytellers of all kinds by making podcasting accessible to all. For more information and current promotions, visit daydreamernetwork.com studios. All right, y'all. It is time. I am so excited to bring you this Trinterview, co-hosted by Colleen Adams with Tammy Ware of the Cincinnati Zoo and Botanical Gardens. Enjoy. All right. So why don't we start off with one of you telling me who you are, where we are, and what you do here. We'll start with the one next to me. All right. Hey, everybody. It's Colleen Adams, one of the interpretive keepers at the Cincinnati Zoo. And you also know me as Zookeeper Colleen if you follow me on any socials. And I am here with my dear friend, Tammy Ware. I am also a keeper here in the interpretive department at the Cincinnati Zoo and uh, love being here every day. Awesome. And we're going to do something fun and different for you all, which I will probably have already explained in the intro. Uh, But we're going to have Colleen take over as host for a bit here. Um, So Colleen's going to be doing some interviewing with Tammy. I'll be here as well. And uh, so so let's get to it. Um, Go ahead, Colleen. All right. So, Tammy, you have a really interesting story when it comes to zookeeping, different than maybe the path that some of the listeners have taken. Um, So could you just give us like a good rundown of how you got to be a keeper and where in the world that took you. Yeah, so my background is very different than most people's. I actually went to college for IT and I did computer work for 10 years. And after about a decade of that, I was tired of it. I was living out of the country and didn't have a job to come back to and really wanted to change careers. So I was able to move to California, go back to school out there. I have a degree in exotic animal training and management from America's Teaching Zoo at Moore Park College, class of 2013. (laughs) And I loved going there so much, but it taught me so much, and it really helped me figure out what I wanted to do working with animals. And so since then, I've been on a journey with internships in Charleston, South Carolina, moved to New Orleans for a little bit, went to Sarasota, Florida, and then luckily ended up here at the Cincinnati Zoo. It took me about three and a half years to get a full-time paid position, but during that time, I got a lot of great experience, I worked in the Africa department for a while and was very fortunate enough to be one of Fiona's moms when she was premature and got to help hand raise her So before I came over to the interpretive department. That is also awesome, Tammy. And I love hearing you tell the story because I feel like I learn something different every time. So I have a follow-up question to your story. Your career path took you all over the country. Do you have a specific institution that you just absolutely loved working for that stood out in your mind along that career path that you want to highlight? Yeah, believe it or not, um, obviously going to school at Moore Park was phenomenal, and they had such a huge variety of animals, and I learned so much and got to work with uh, quite a lot. But actually out in Charleston, I was at the South Carolina Aquarium, and I worked with their um, lemurs, their otters, their skunks, their ambassador animals. But the really cool thing was I got to do enrichment for every single animal there. So I would do enrichment for lobsters and for fish and for octopi and stuff like that. So it taught me a lot um, 
about how the smallest species can actually be so intelligent and so brilliant. And just watching them manipulate enrichment and work things out was a lot of fun. Um, and then I'm very, very near and dear to my heart working with the manatees down in Sarasota, Florida. Uh, Hugh and Buffett, those are my two little boys. Not very little, but I love doing water training with them inside or outside of the water. So they are magnificent creatures that will never uh, be replaceable. On a quick side note, I don't know if you heard the um, the episode, but uh, I, I went to Moat and I got to meet and feed and hang out with you and Buffett, and Yay. they are amazing, aren't they? They're so good. They're so amazing. I um I didn't realize that we we're going to be in like the upper area of their enclosure, which is outside. <laughs> and um, I was burnt to a crisp, but I refused. I wouldn't even go under the shade because it meant walking away from them. And I was just like, whatever, sunburn is worth it. It's fine. <laughs> it totally is. <laughs> well, I'm the odd man out here and I've never met a manatee. So if you can believe it, that's oh something gosh. on my career bucket list to do at some point. And we have them here at the zoo. So that's pretty silly of go me. Go meet Swim Shady. I yep. probably like, should. Yeah, just say hi. Let's do it. <laughs> um, Tammy, you said something that just really piqued my interest, and that is about how the smallest of animals and the smallest of species, who are sometimes maybe underappreciated, can be really intelligent. And you also mentioned enriching a lobster. Can you tell me (laughs) what in the world you did to enrich a lobster? Just give me an example. So my favorite enrichment that we did was at Halloween, and we took the little mini pumpkins and we carved them. So we hollowed them out, we carved them, we put weights on the bottom of them so they would sink, and then we uh, crammed them with all of their meat, which was like crab meat, (laughs) and um, their dinner. So we had um, several lobsters. We had enough for each lobster to have their own carved pumpkin, Um, but just like any other species, one wants what the other one has, so they always fight over the same um, pumpkins. It was great. That is so awesome. Okay, so total pivot, because I know people listening are probably really interested. You mentioned the queen of Cincinnati, Fiona herself. Um, So please, just talk to us about what that experience was like and what it meant to you and what it taught you. It was um, something I will never be able to replace. Um, I will keep it in my heart at all times. Um, It was the most scary ride I've ever been on in my life. Um, I know I was just considered a temporary keeper at the time, but I still felt like I played a huge part in her growth and her development. Um, We would do swim sessions with her. We taught her how to swim. Uh, One of my scariest nights going in was staying on overnights, and um, they told me that she was just learning how to do her dive response, and she was out of water. So she shouldn't really have been doing that. So I remember timing her, and I remember her holding her breath for about two and a half minutes while I'm trying not to panic because— I'm just like, I need this hippo to breathe. I just need her to breathe. I just need her to breathe and not knowing how long she was going to hold her breath. So it was very, very scary. We would, um, one day we'd come in and everything would be great. And then the next day you're like, am I coming into a hippo that's no longer here? Am I coming into a hippo that's thriving? What am I coming into? So the first several months were very, very scary, very, very intense. Um, I was here when the children's hospital nurses came in from the NICU and were able to get, um, a needle into her because we were not able to get um, one into her to hook her up to an IV. So they got specialists in here to do that that work specifically on um, neonates. And I remember bringing them into the building and leaving and then coming back and escorting them out. And then 30 minutes later, uh, she had blown her vein and I had to go back out and meet Children's Hospital and bring them back into the building. So um, I know each one of us on the team has our own unique stories. We all kind of got a little bit of a different role um, but that's one of the things I will also always think about as well as um, her teething. But it was just every day was an adventure. <laughs> but my favorite parts were literally when we were teaching her how to swim in her exhibit, getting in a wetsuit, getting in the water with her and just teaching her to swim back and forth um, in that exhibit and where to get out, where was safe, where was not safe, things like that. So that was my favorite parts. That is so awesome. So it sounds like being part of Fiona's care team really sharpened your ability to have like good emergency response and to stay calm in the face of unknown and scary things. Um, Working with you for so long, I think that we both know what I'm about to say, that that is a role that you play really well on our team. We recently lost um, our baby sloth, who we named Thora, and um, Tammy was our rock through the whole situation. So, um, Tammy, I don't know if you want to speak not to the sloth specifically, but just in general, um, how you're able to move through those situations, keep a level head in the face 
face of, you know, the really hard things that come with being a keeper. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's something that I've been really good at since I was younger, and I don't really know why. Um, But I've always, in adversity, things like that, especially when it comes to critical care or emergency situations medically, I've always been able to stay very, very calm. Um, So I feel like I've been able to take that role and really take the weight off of other people's shoulders because when there is a crisis or where there is a situation where an animal is injured or we don't know what's doing or they're crashing, that I can be that person that's like, okay, let's assess the situation and I can stay calm. It's just very much in my nature to stay calm. Let me get the animal to where they need to go, whether um, usually it's down to the hospital, obviously, or even if it's into another room, if it's just holding it until somebody gets there to us. Um, And I don't ever panic in those situations. Um, It's been really nice for me to know that that about myself. It's really been eye-opening about myself. Um, because I can be an emotional person, but for whatever reason in those types of situations, I've always been able to stay very, very calm. I've been able to assess it, deal with it, let everybody else have their moments. If people need to mourn or grieve, I'm there for them. I'm the rock for them. And then once I get home is when I usually typically will process those situations. That's awesome. Thank you for that transparency. And I also find it extra interesting because knowing you, you do have an exuberant personality. <laughs> you are giggly and fun and a lot of energy. I I often refer to you as my fireworks friend. You're like a, you're like a fireworks display every day. It's different colors and different sounds from Tammy. Um, so it's just extra interesting that you're able to kind of channel all of that energy into a calm and still and focused energy. So um, thank you again for sharing that. Let's pivot to something more fun and upbeat. Actually, I'm going to pivot for one second. And pivot, John. So um, I'm I'm the same way. Yeah. Whenever there has been a situation like a dangerous or scary thing, I'm the one who is super calm, a super rock. And then like you said, I process it later, right? Which is an amazing skill to have. Yeah. And that's awesome. What's it like for you when you process it later? Um, it comes in different forms. So it really depends on the situation. It depends on how close I was with, with the animal. Usually it's an animal related. Um, sometimes it's human related and I have coworkers who can attest at how calm I am in human related incidences as well. Um, but a lot of times it's, I hope I can say this on the air. A lot of times it's me going home and having a glass of wine and just telling my husband everything. And usually there's tears involved as well. And usually once I process it and get it out, I'm good to go. That's cool. That's that's really that's such a healthy way to handle things. Um, yeah, I remember I had an experience one time where um, some friends and I were attacked by a rabid animal and um, literally skated away from it by the the you know skin of our teeth. And I'm driving away and I'm driving away and everyone else was panicking and screaming and oh my gosh and I was fine and I handled it all. Got everyone in the car, did all the things, and then about two miles down the road pulled over they had all calmed down already and were like joking about it and that's when i like needed to like shake it off and like we i oh i just got attacked and like you said talk through it quick Mm -hmm. and then everything was fine but i just it's rare that you meet other people that have that kind of thing so i was curious to hear what that's like yeah it's really funny because um i think i my supervisors have seen that in me as well um when I was in a different department, we did have a uh, we did have an emergency situation where somebody ended up having to go into the hospital, and they made sure that I was the person that went with them because they knew I would stay level headed and I would stay calm instead of panicking. And because uh, if I panic, then the person that's actually injured is just going to panic even more. Um, so I, I'm happy that other people can see that in me. Yeah, that's really cool. It's important to be able to pee your pants in private sometimes. Exactly. Yep, awesome. <laughs> All right, so let's go back to your pivot. Back to my pivot. Okay, something more fun. I just want to ask you an off-the-wall random question. What is one of your favorite things about your job that you do right now? Oh, my gosh. Um Obviously, I love doing all my training sessions. I love being able to share training sessions with my coworkers. It's some of my favorite things. It's more relaxing for me. Um, it's where my bright spots in the day are. Um, and I love doing the cameos with Rico for whatever reason. It just it brings me a lot of joy to be able to like make something positive for other people that's really hopefully going to lift their day. We have renamed the Rico cameos Tamios. <laughs> uh, I coined that term because Tammy does the majority of our cameos and no one does them better. So they are now Tamios in our department. I love that. <laughs> Anyway, continue, Tammy. Oh, no. So, yeah. So um, any kind of – I don't know. I just – 
I really love being able to talk about the animals with anybody and everybody, and I feel like I light up when I do it, um, even if it's just to a random guest or if it's doing a Zoom call or whatever, children's hospital visit. It doesn't matter what it is. It's just anytime that I get that opportunity to talk about our animals, it's great. Very cool. What kind of animals do you take to children's hospital? Um, well, they actually will either come here. They used to come here once a month and we would do them. So we would take all of our, like, our rabbits and lizards and stuff as well as birds to them. Um, I have gone to Children's Hospital with some animals as well and done some visits there. Um, but now most of them are virtual right now just since the kids aren't able to come over. Well, sure, but those aren't exciting stories. So tell me about, like, when you went to, to Children's Hospital and what that was like. Yeah, it was pretty um, phenomenal. We had a patient that was not able to come to the zoo. Um, he had a disorder that wouldn't allow him out. Um, and so we went to him and they have a room that's designed for people to bring their pets to. And it's so sweet. Like it's, there's a, there's a fenced in yard, there's an indoor space and everything so that people from home can bring the pets so that the patients can see them. Um, so we took, um, we took things all, all like cockroaches and snakes and lizards, as well as a rabbit too. Uh, children's hospital. So we got to get them out one by one, and it was a son and his mom, and each one of them got an opportunity to interact with all four of the animals and get pictures and just make a memory for them. So I can imagine those moments are probably extremely eye-opening and help ground you for like how life you know, how precious life is and, and that kind of thing. I've, I've seen you tear up many a times after a creature connection, and I know those really speak to you. So thank you for sharing and elaborating on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is that is really cool. And um, you know, while we're talking about connections, I have a question for both of you. Okay. And and you know, y'all mentioned Rico. And Rico has become a freaking star here. I remember um on one of my visits here, Rico was off exhibit because y'all rotate some of the animals, and there was such demand to bring him back that I have a picture of his new area set up all decorated with welcome back Rico signs because it was a whole thing. And now I go into the gift shop and there is Rico everywhere. So Rico has become a star. Talk to me about what it's like dealing with, you know, a star animal that maybe isn't like, we all know why Fiona's a star. Rico, what made him a star and why do people love him and what the heck is going on with all of this? Well, I want to tell, I want to say one really fun, funny thing. Tammy might know what I'm about to say, but our, um, Former headkeeper Erin O'Brien left us back in March. We still miss her, but she left us back in March. And Rico was her boy. Like, they were besties. And before she left, she said, it is my goal to make Rico as popular, if not more popular, than Fiona. <laughs> and Erin didn't set goals that Erin didn't meet. <laughs> so wouldn't you know it, one of Rico's videos has more views than any of Fiona's videos what? do. That's so. Amazing. If nothing else, he's at least reached Fiona's status in many regards. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to throw that out there that it's probably a thing because Erin O'Brien spoke it into existence. I agree. She definitely pushed it and pushed it and pushed it and pushed it with PR and marketing and everything, which is great. Um, it's one of those where any of us can go in there, like any of his keepers can go in there. And he is always super cute and super sweet. And he has that squishy nose and people love to watch him eat. And I don't know, it is so funny, but like they're obsessed with watching him eat. Everybody, like all these cameos that come in, they're like, we really want to watch him eat one of his favorite treats. And it's like, okay. Um, <laughs> it is. It's so, it's so amazing because I can imagine most other zoo animals, people don't want to watch eat. But for whatever reason, watching Rico hold his food in his hand and then just little chomp down on it. And he usually makes a mess with his peanut butter or anything else. But that really has made the attraction is because he is a up-close, in-your-face video. It's not something that you're seeing from a distance. We've got him right there. And the more we post, the more people love him. And we might get some hate for saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think Rico is one of the best-looking PT porcupines out there. He is so not scraggly looking. Uh, is he true. is, like, well-groomed and well-put-together. He's just, like, a fine specimen of a PT porcupine. <laughs> and I think that helps, that he just is, like, the picture of a porcupine. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, people just love the eating. They love how cute he is. And they love his abnormally large, squishy nose, mm -hmm. um, which feels a little bit like velvet, because I know you guys are wondering. It feels mm -hmm. a little bit like velvet. And it is as squishy as it looks. And he will let us, like, squish it and yes. wiggle it around. 
That's amazing. I got to hang out with a prehensile tailed porcupine recently. That's what PT means, if you don't know. Oh, sorry. And no, it's all good. And um, and uh, I didn't get to squish the nose. Um, and and I wanted to, but it was it was a, a shire porcupine. Um, but yeah, no, I know what you mean. In the different porcupines that I've seen, a lot of them are you know a little scraggly um, because they're shooting their quills at people. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> we all know they don't shoot their quills, but but they do. You know, like Rico is a handsome, handsome boy. But even while I was standing there um, today, just checking out the exhibits, you know, he's hiding. He's got his butt sticking out, and everybody that stopped by was like, "It's Rico! It's Rico! I'm seeing Rico!" And I was like, "Y'all know." Y'all know that Lucille's right over here, right? Can we talk about this? Can we talk about it, John? That's a perfect segue. (laughs) So, Tammy, you are one of Lucille's co-moms with me. Yep. Tell me what it is like working with that feisty diva bear cat. (laughs) It is um, everything. It's the biggest emotional roller coaster that you can imagine. Um, We have a lot of ups and highs and a lot of lows. And, you know, every day is an adventure. Um, The days that she's like, so sweet and loving and just wants to get on your shoulder and hang out is the best in the world. And then you have the day where she's like, I just want food. Let me have the food. Or you take her for a run around and she's just like running all over the place, pouncing and playing and everything else. And it's like, okay. But then she gets back, you know, and you're like, oh my gosh, why am I doing this some days? And then she gets back on your shoulder and she's sweet. And you're like, oh yeah, this is why I'm doing this. So um, she keeps us on our toes. She is probably taught... I. Maybe I'm speaking for both of us. She has probably taught us how to read animal behavior and listen to an animal more than any other animal that I've ever worked with. Accurate. Yeah. So we ha- we feel like we uh, know what she's telling us, what she's saying to us. Uh, we've been able to decipher her moods um, and her behaviors and like when she wants to play, when she wants to work, when she wants to just relax, when she's like, let's go outside, let's not go outside, let's stay here. No, let's go in there. Let's crate. No, let's not crate. It's all fun. So for those of you listening that don't know, Lucille is our um, two-year-old baby binturong or bear cat, and she is our ambassador for the University of Cincinnati because their uh, mascot is a bear cat. So Tammy and I uh, both raised Lucille and have been on Lucille's care team for years, and it has been full of lots of challenges, Um, you know, her being an arboreal fanged clawed animal just brings a lot of challenges (laughs) she's also you know 30 something pounds and rides on our shoulders so um just want to throw that little backstory in there yeah and um if you haven't heard this you know about lucille before um i was at the nashville zoo when lucille was maybe two weeks old and got to see her being bottle fed and have been following her life ever since i knew lucille before i knew colleen (laughs) um and and i was a big love of lucy who was her predecessor in that um ambassador role and um and lucille just came and and you know was a little little you know cub and stole my heart and um I've just been obsessed ever since. I actually think I have – do you know what phantom limb syndrome is? Yep. Okay. I have phantom shoulder syndrome <laughs> because I've had – I've gotten to interact with a couple of binturongs now who have hung out and, and spent some time on my shoulder and stuff. And um, every time I see Lucille, I can feel her on my shoulder. And she's never – you know, that's not the kind of relationship that, that we've had. Yet, no, I know that she doesn't. You know, <laughs> she's a feisty one, but um, but I can literally feel like she's sitting on my shoulder sometimes when I'm hanging out with her, and I just I love her so much, and I feel like every time I've been here, getting photos of Lucille is challenging. The glass is bad, the mesh is mesh, you know. Yep. But I feel like every time I'm here, I usually get at least one that we're all like, "Whoa, that's you know from outside the exhibit. That's really cool." Yeah. John is so obsessed with Lucille. He may have sent her a stuffed red panda, who we then named Rasafari. So that's one way that you're kind of in the enclosure with her. Mm-hmm. It's true. And Colleen sends me pictures, like, regularly. <laughs> I will wake up to, because I wake up at, like, you know, noon most days, and <laughs> I will wake up to just pictures of of Lucille. It's um, I highly recommend becoming good friends with zookeepers because – this is my life. I just I get pictures of the animals that I love sent to me from people that I love, and it's it's amazing. So yeah, <laughs> awesome. Okay, so another favorite, really trendy animal right now are sloths. Tammy, you've done a ton with our sloths, so you want to talk a little bit about who our sloths are and what the journey with them has been like over the last couple of years? Yeah, um, we have two. Our male, his name is Mo. He is twenty two years old, and he is the most 
chill sloth. He is what people think all sloths are like, and it's really not that true. Um, but he is one of these sloths who we can uh, carry around to go on programs, and he does so many meet and greets, or he did. Um, but, you know, he really just is mellow and relaxed and everything. And then we have our female. Her name is Lightning. Uh, she came to us from the um, El Paso Zoo, and she has been, um, uh, she's great now. Um, when she first came to us, she was a completely different sloth. She was the polar opposite of Mo. She is ginormous. That's my technical term for it. <laughs> um, we used to joke about um, she's got these long legs for days, and she has crazy, crazy hair. And when we were in quarantine with her, she would come over to us and she would slash at us and she would hiss at us and everything else. And so we'd gotten some we'd gotten some warnings about her from her previous uh, facility and her previous keepers and everything. So we were kind of aware of what was going on. Um, we put her on exhibit and she is so active. She's constantly moving around the exhibit whenever she was out there in the trees. Um, she wasn't always the nicest to our male sloth mo. Um, so there would be days where she was very much, I love you. And then there was days where she was like, I hate you. Um, so it was always a challenge. When we switched up our tours, we would have guests come over and, um, we have a ladder. She's trained her. I worked on her, uh, training to come down a ladder. She goes into her big bucket and everything. And so our tours really changed drastically once she went out on exhibit, um, because she was so active. She would come over to the ladder. She was very curious about guests. And, um, very interactive with the guests, which was great. It was a whole different type of uh, program now at this point. So she became kind of our star and everything. Um, well, believe it or not, even at, at the time, 21 years old, Mo was a very successful breeding male. Um, we trained her to do ultrasounds, which was super cool. She would go into our bucket. Um, we worked really closely with one of our crew scientists, and uh, she would come up weekly, and we would do ultrasounds. And then finally one day we saw a baby, and we were all so excited. Um, we had some tree work that had to be done in our main rainforest, so we took that opportunity to relocate lightning into um, an enclosure where we would be able to be closer to her, and that really, really changed her demeanor. We were going into a smaller space with her every single day. She wasn't high up. She was down on our level every day. We would go in. We would hand feed her. We were able to start really um, desensitizing her to being touched, and so it really helped with the development of the baby because... We were getting her out still for weekly ultrasounds, but now she was letting us touch her belly. She was letting us touch her nipples for lactation and for swelling. Um, we're able to touch her hands and everything. So it's been a two-plus-year journey with her, but it was really cool to see her transition because once she got to know who we were and we started working with her every day and really trusting us and us trusting her, it's like a completely different sloth. So it's really amazing to watch that change. Yeah, she is definitely a picture of um, what beautiful things can happen when we deposit trust into those trust banks with our animals. So even when we've had to take withdrawals and do things that maybe she didn't like quite as much, um, we didn't bankrupt our trust banks because there were so many deposits deep into those trust banks. Um, Tammy, you mentioned working with crew scientists um, to do the ultrasounds and things with lightning. Can you tell us what crew is here at the zoo and how we have worked with them and specifically even about the thermoimaging project? Yeah. Did. Yeah. Um, so uh, crew, correct me if I'm wrong, is the Center for um, Research of Endangered Wildlife, I believe, or, or some reproduction. Reproduction. Maybe yeah. interrupting John can tell us. It's time for interrupting. 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 Interrupting, interrupting John. If there is one thing I've learned doing this podcast, it's that if Colleen Adams tells you to do something, you do it. So here is your interrupting John that is here to inform you that CREW is the Lindner Center for Conservation and Research of Endangered Wildlife. Now, this is a group of world-renowned scientists at the Cincinnati Zoo that form partnerships with conservationists and both governmental and non-governmental organizations to achieve their mission to save species with science. Through advanced animal and plant research, CREW is leading the way to secure a positive future for endangered species. They use a multi-pronged approach, which includes research, propagation, in situ protection, meaning protection actually out in the environment where these plants or animals exist, 
Um, education and public engagement to save targeted plants and animals. And now you know what crew is. And now we head back to the interview. And they do. They have specialists that specialize in a lot of different um, reproduction science. Um, they have a whole colony of cats and everything that they reproduce and they do AI with and they um, do different genetics with them. I know they have a really special cat right now. I can't tell you all the details. Um, but working with Dr. Jesse Watusik um, was pretty cool um, for the slots especially just because um, it really became a trust with her, with the animals also, um, because they kind of had to get to know her. We had to get to know them. Um, and it was slow at first. Like we went through all different kind of um, apparatuses to be able to, uh, I guess, do a proper ultrasound on her. But once Lightning really learned the routine and once Jesse really started coming up and getting to know Lightning's behavior, it went really smoothly. And we were able to just like hand feed Lightning while she just kind of hung out in her bucket and we got ultrasounds every week. But the other thing that we did was this, uh, what Colleen brought up was thermal imaging. And it's a really neat science where we were able to, we'd put like an electronic um, stethoscope on an animal and they would also use a camera for thermal imaging. And it was to see if they could find a way to detect their heart rate by using the thermal cameras without having to be invasive in, in an animal's space. Um, so it was kind of neat to be able to monitor those two things at the same time. Um, it was really cool to see the thermal imaging of like lightning's face versus Moe's face, because even though they're both sloths, they both give off different temperature gradients. Um, and then to even be able to see the different gradient on lightning's belly uh, when she had a baby, like as it was developing everything, it kind of changed also. So. Yeah, and I believe that the grand scope of the project was to be able to monitor populations, say, from, like, even helicopter yes. or from up in the air. Yep. Yeah, they want to be able to see if they could monitor population health of specific species without being invasive. So they needed to gather some preliminary data. So ambassador animals, being as tactile as they are, make really great candidates um, for that baseline data. Yeah, it's it's amazing to, like— think that we could just be like a speck of dust on this huge, big worldwide project. Yeah, absolutely. That's That was one of the highlights for me too. And it was really cool also looking at reptiles versus mammals. Yeah. You know, being the ectotherms that they are and not regulating their own their own body temperature was also pretty fascinating. Yep. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Um, and, you know, not to take it away from the fun part, but as you mentioned, um, the baby did not make it. And... Um, you know, I know that there was a huge uh, social media excitement about about lightning, and of course, sloths are pregnant forever. Um, so it wasn't even nine months; it was what ten, eleven months. I 11 think eleven to twelve months. Okay, yeah. And so, um, what was that like? Kind of on a. I'm, I'm going to go deeper in a minute, but on a surface level, um, what were, what was the experience like for both of you um, seeing that happen so publicly? It was um, challenging to say, you know, it's like we are a fairly transparent zoo. No, um, no, no. You are an incredibly <laughs> transparent zoo. I, I, love, I think that the PR team here does such incredible work. Yep. And I think that is so important. I, I literally, when I talk to PR people at other zoos about going and doing interviews, anytime I get the chance to, I talk about, hey, have you seen how Cincy does this? For, for anything. I, I have probably hurt my chances to get interviews by being like, oh, by the way, I noticed this thing and you should do it how Cincy does it. But anyway, go, go ahead. Yeah. Um, it it can be challenging because we want to be completely transparent. Um, sometimes we get pushed a little bit quicker than I think the keepers are ready for sometimes um, because we would like that moment to grieve a little bit before it gets sent out publicly. Um, I do appreciate how transparent we are, though, because I do feel like there's so many times where you see, you go, you know, you hear that an animal is pregnant or that this is happening or they're breeding or whatever, and then you never hear the outcome of it. And so you don't really know the whole scope of it. Um, I do think that the Cincinnati Zoo is definitely changing perception across the board for zoos, and it's making it a lot easier for zoos to be more transparent instead of hiding stuff, which is good. Um, but there were moments, I would say, that we kind of wished we could have taken a few more hours, taken a few more breaths to let us as a team grieve together, mourn together before the world found out. 
Yeah, it's definitely a double-edged sword. I love the transparency because I love the fact that um, it's really clear that we're not hiding anything at the Cincinnati Zoo, and zoos face so much scrutiny that I think it's really crucial that we really, really um, convince people that we aren't hiding anything and we earn their trust that way. And one of the best ways to earn trust is just be honest and transparent. So I think that's kind of what we're all about. But to speak to Tammy's point, of course, it would also be nice sometimes to just have those moments to be able to grieve. So there is a fine balance between the two. Another benefit of people finding out, though, is people get to feel those emotions themselves to a certain level. So just because I think we've had to realize that just because someone isn't the keeper of that animal doesn't mean that that animal hasn't been a bright spot in their life, in their day, in their world. Um, I know... uh, (laughs) We all share a friend named Andrew who is obsessed with tamanduas, and he will tell me sometimes that the tamandua post that just got posted was the bright spot in his day. He was having an extra hard day, and then he saw Eastless face. So I just imagine there are probably thousands of people around the globe connected to our animals, and they don't just want the highlights, right? They want to go on that journey with us and be able to smile with us, laugh with us, and then also grieve with us and mourn with us. And some of them are living vicariously through us because— like John here, who are not zookeepers on the day to day, but it doesn't mean they love animals less than right. we do. So I think it actually gives them this really beautiful um, outlet to be able to feel those feels about animals that if we kept that all hidden, they wouldn't have the opportunity to do. And I'll say that like I did feel, I think we all felt so much love and support from our community near and far um, that did grieve the loss of our sloth baby Thora. Um, it was really the outpouring that we got, I think, from every facet was amazing. And so I do know that everybody does genuinely care um, and everything. So that's one of the that's one of the really good things is they can ride this journey with us. They can grieve with us. They can give us the support that we need whenever we do need it. So for sure. In general, I've been surprised because I, you know, staying out of the comments is always a good idea. But I've, <laughs> I've ducked in a couple of times. I, I feel like it's my job, especially with the Zoo News stuff, to like see what people are reacting to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you'll see thousands of comments. And I would say 90 plus percent of them are positive, yeah. which is shocking to me because the anti-cap crowd is very loud, very vocal. I hear from them regularly. Um, and uh, But I, I think it's really cool to see how much of it is positive. And, you know, I, I do think that's a beautiful thing. Um, and you're right. I am one of those people. And sometimes I actually struggle a little bit. With someone like you, we've become good enough friends where I know, like, you get it with me and Lucille. Mm-hmm. And, like, Christy Nuss at Columbus gets it with me and those pandas, especially. <laughs> she understands that, like, I feel as close to Bandit and Lucille as I ever have with you know, any of my pets, really. Mm-hmm. It's it's amazing. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, sometimes you do get a little imposter syndrome when it's like, oh, I love this animal so much. But you're actually with the animal every day and stuff, you know. But somebody like an Andrew or me or even just, like you said, just casual people online. Like, yeah. It, it, and that's so important because you know Andrew's looking into Tamandua charities and working on stuff. And you know I work with Red Panda Network. And uh, I've even looked into AB Conservation, the only Bintron conservation organization that I know about. And um, they're based in France. And most of their posts are in French. And I I, I don't do very well with Google <laughs> Translate all the time. But, like, I'm there for it. And, you know, so it, it does have a wider impact. Um, but, yeah, sometimes I do feel a little bit like like you'll send me a pic and I'm like, I love her so much. And I'm like, you know, uh, I know you love her more, though. or just differently maybe. Well, I'm glad that you brought that up, John, because actually having, you know, losing baby Thora, I think taught me a lesson that I didn't expect it to teach me. Um, I pick a word for every year and this, this year's word was humility. And so I really was just looking for lessons to, to be humble and to learn humility. And when baby Thora died, it was a kick to my humility because I realized that I have been um, overly possessive of my care for my animals, of my relationship with my animals, um, to where I'm constantly like, well, yeah, you don't love them as much. Imagine being the person that cares for them. Imagine being the person who just lost that animal. And everything is relative. So you love Lucille as much as you've ever loved an animal ever you know, in relation to you. And the last thing I need to do is come at anybody and remind them that my relationship is A, one they would love to have, and is and B, is in any way superior to their relationship with that animal because every person's relationship with an animal has a beautiful place in their life. Um, 
you know, keep going back to Andrew and Tamandua's and then you and Lucille and you and Bandit and those kinds of relationships, like those are not any less valuable or, or important. We just, Tammy and I just play a unique role in getting them their food and their water and making care decisions for them. So um, I did want to share that that was like kind of a, a learning moment for me when it comes to humility. And it came because our director sent out a really amazing email after we lost baby Thora, thanking everyone for their efforts and, um, you know, just bringing the zoo together during that time. And he strategically thanked every single person who had had anything to do with baby Thora. And it reminded me that it really was a whole zoo loss. And it really, like, it was going to be felt by everybody around the Cincinnati, Cincinnati Zoo, the state, the country, and probably people around the world were, were mourning that loss with us. So um, it was a really valuable lesson. And um, I apologize if I've ever made you feel imposter syndrome. You have not. You have not. You send me <laughs> pictures. You do all the things. It's, it's an internal thing. Isn't imposter syndrome always an internal it thing, is. though? It I've, definitely is. I've never had a drummer say to me, you're not good enough or anything like that. But I've definitely seen drummers and been like, I'm not good enough. You know, like it's not just even animals. <laughs> um, but, you know, you bring up an interesting point and you say that it's it's, it's zoo-wide and also, like you said, beyond the confines, but even just in terms of being zoo-wide. I recently have become friends with a person who works at the Akron Zoo, okay? And and she is the gift shop – I'm going to screw up the title – but gift shop manager or acquisition manager or something. And um, and her name's Colleen as well. Different Colleen though. Um, you're not also at the Akron Zoo. But, um, used to be. <laughs> yes. And um, – and, you know, when they lost the snow leopard recently and like they knew it was coming. It was a kidney disease thing. It was an older, you know, all the things. Um, she was as devastated and was, this is my cat. And I go and I visit and like, you know, anytime she tells me about anything to do with animals there. And she's a huge fan of the Zoo News episode. So she shares with me all the time mm -hmm. what is going on there and for Zoo News purposes. And every time it is a R this, you know, animal was our animal and, mm -hmm. and our zoo family. And, um, same with what you said about your director here, the director there made sure to include everybody in the morning for that, you know, snow leopard situation and everything and watching her ownership of those animals and love of those animals when she's in a gift shop and even talking to her about how she plans the merch around the animals that she sees people connecting with and stuff. Mind boggling. Like it's all everyone involved, you're right, is is so heavily involved. And it's it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, and and honestly, John, it just means more advocacy for the animals, right? The more people that fall in love with these animals, the more people that are advocating for them, the more conservation efforts. It's literally why Tammy and I do the job we do as ambassador keepers is to connect people with wildlife. So if there are other people out following that same mission, like that is something to only be excited about. And I think where keepers sometimes maybe struggle on this on this issue of ownership and, and, and whatnot is when we go down the road of compassion fatigue, which I'm sure you've talked to other keepers about. Um, but it's that literally being the caretaker, having the weight of those decisions on your shoulders. It's the long nights, the hard moments, it's the gross stuff and, and all of that. So I think sometimes some of my possessiveness came out of even just like the symptoms of compassion fatigue and just being overly tired yeah, um, dealing with sense. it. Well, and that's, and that's actually, it was the one thing I said we were going to hit in the interview, like in my own brain was <laughs> like, I want to talk about compassion fatigue with you and with you. Mm -hmm. And, um, that was such a great segue, but, um, let's talk about it and, and everything because to, to give this some perspective for people who are, you know, not keepers, right. Um, if you've ever had to be the person to make a decision about a child or a parent or a pet, if you've ever had to look at, at a dog that you love and, and say, okay, I know they're struggling and now it's time and, and it's time for euthanasia, right? You know how hard that can be. And in a lifetime, a normal person might have to make that decision a dozen times maybe if you have a lot of pets or a heck of a lot less. How many animals are in y'all's care right now? 135. Right. And that's right now. There that's right now. Others and they're, yeah, over the course of a career. So making those choices, the choices that most of us think is the worst ones we will ever make a couple times in our lives, is a daily occurrence it is. for y'all or weekly or whatever. So talk to me about how y'all deal with compassion fatigue. And, um, you know, a lot of keepers listen. Any advice y'all can give? Any journeys y'all have been on that you're willing to share? I would I would love that. Yeah. Um. To put it in perspective, I've been in this department for full-time for four years now, 
And when I started, we had 175 animals. So that's 40 less animals, but all of those, we've also added animals. So there's been a lot of change. There's been a lot of um, uh, losing animals in one form or another. And it doesn't always have to be death. Um, it can be simply this animal is now going to another facility to breed as well. And sometimes people don't really think about that as well. But the, every time you lose an animal that you're not going to get to see every single day again, it really does play on you. Um, we may have some animals that aren't, you know, you're like, oh, that one doesn't really hit that hard. So maybe one of our marine toads that passed away or whatever. Um, but there's other animals that you have more of a relationship with, you have more of a bond with. And every single time you lose one of those or you have to make the decision about them or you have to be involved in a decision about them, it just compounds upon each other. So it's not like, oh, I'm going to wrap this one up, put a bow on it. It's taken care of. It's done. It goes away. It chisels away at you a little bit every single time you have to think about that, talk about it, make a decision. Um, we had, I think, earlier this year in a span of six weeks, we lost six animals. I Not this year. It was actually early 2021 now. Um, but in a span of six weeks, we lost six animals. And a couple of them were, you know, um, geriatric, um, cancerous, things like that. But then we had the bigger decisions of watching this animal, like, fade really badly and spending hours upon hours just trying to get them to take a medication and going in and out and in and out. And, like, at this, you know, you get to a point where you're like, I don't care what you're eating anymore. Just eat something, right? So you give them a tray of 50 different items, and you see if they'll eat anything from pudding to cookie dough. Cookie dough. Oh, my gosh. It did, I did. I went to the store and got edible cookie dough and would Multiple hand flavors. Feed. Yep. <laughs> just to try anything and everything. And it was just like we put our heart and soul into every single animal. So every time you take a little bit of a hit, you get chiseled away a little bit more. Well, and you would think that it it regenerates in some way, right? Like we've got so many amazing high moments in our job. So that one might think, well, at least you've got really great stuff going on. But I think you only got X amount of reserves for these types of moments and you just get used up. So um, it can be really, really difficult. You know, losing Lucy the bear cat took a big hit for us. Um, Tammy and I have walked through two wallaby uh, euthanasias together and those were pretty devastating for both of us. Um, and so those took a really, really big hit as well. And, you know, Tammy mentioned, it's not like you can just like tie it up with a bow and, and put it off to the side when you do tie it up though, like you knowingly put a piece of your heart in there. So that's a little bit of you that goes away. And I wish I could say that flying Zulu or Lady Ross's Taraku, I talk about another episode or, um, getting Lucille on the shoulder just like rejuvenates me and regenerates me, but that's not actually the case. Um, something John, you asked if we have any advice for, for moving through these situations and probably the best advice that I can give is to just on the day to day, pour your time and your effort into building trust with your teammates and into shaping your culture because you don't realize until shit hits the fan how badly you're going to need them when in your moments of being vulnerable. And if this if this loss, hit, loss hits you harder, um, your team is more ready to have grace for you if you've already put the time into being a good teammate to them and, and building that trust. So um, Tammy always says that between the two of us, when one of us is weak, the other one is strong and vice versa. We're rarely ever down at the same time. And it's this beautiful um, way that we're able to work together. Um, sometimes I might be sobbing and sometimes she's sobbing. And it's really nice because then there's always a shoulder to lean on. Um, but I say that seriously, that building into that culture, then mm-hmm. it's there when you need to call on it. I will say I love our the way that we all work together, um, Colleen and I especially, but then our whole team. Um, when we do have to make these decisions, it's been really nice to be able to be like, let's actually talk about this. I mean, we just had one a couple of weeks ago and Colleen was like, I don't have a relationship with that animal. So whatever you guys deem is best for that animal, I trust your decision on that. And I think that's what you have to do is like, you have to be able to talk to your entire team, but you also have to know when, you know, maybe I can't be, it's not my turn. It's not my decision to make, but I will support the people that it is their turn to make that decision. 
So. Yeah, and you remind me that um, one of our teammates, Mark, had a really great point when we were debriefing the loss of baby Thora. He said, hey, guys, I think we need to actually talk about where our strengths and weaknesses lie in terms of trauma specifically. Mm-hmm. So when trauma happens, Tammy is a quick thinker. And she is not going to get grossed out or faint or those kinds of things. But um, I mentioned our old headkeeper, Erin O'Brien. She didn't like going to the hospital. She just really didn't do well. So when shit hit the fan, Erin was the one who was going to go clean 135 animals so the rest of us could deal with the trauma. Because those animals, they still all need what they need, and they have no idea that trauma <laughs> is happening. Um, so Mark brought up that we need to have like a real serious conversation about what are our strengths? And then not being embarrassed if you're the one who isn't strong in that specific area. So we're actually just like kind of tackling trauma as if it's its own team project so that we know how to apply ourselves as resources during the next traumatic situation because they always come. And mm-hmm. I mean, being a zookeeper means that we've got another another loss on the horizon at some point. So I think we're more and more ready with every conversation. Um and it and it's a really cool um, moment of letting go of your ego and letting go of your pride when you say when someone can say, "Hey, Tammy, you're really, really good at this." It doesn't make me any less of a zookeeper if I mentally cannot be the one in the room for the actual euthanasia, which is not actually me because I am in the room for many <laughs> euthanasias. But it doesn't make me any less of a keeper if I feel that way. It doesn't make you any less of a keeper if you faint at the sight of blood or nope. the smell of infection oozing out of something, which is just horrendous yes, and yes, knocks people out. But it doesn't make you less of a keeper. You don't, you're not a well-rounded keeper because I can face all trauma at all times. Like, no, you're a well-rounded team if your team can face trauma. Mm-hmm. I think that's freaking brilliant to start with. Um, I think that, I mean, that, I hope that every, I want every zookeeper in the world to listen to this episode for that because that makes so much sense. And honestly, you know, a lot of people I talk to don't trust their team. And, and, uh, you know, I mean, I, I talk off record with a lot of, a lot of these people that I'm, I'm speaking to. And so frequently there's so much drama at work between teammates and, um, it's interesting to think of that in terms of affecting the animals and especially in traumatic moments. But I also think that can apply to families. Um, Absolutely. I'm thinking – as you were saying that, I completely went off anything to do with the podcast and animals and was thinking about the fact that I have a 90-year-old grandfather and that you know his wife died a couple years ago, my nanny, and I loved her. And um, I learned a lot about how everyone in my family handles trauma. And um, some of it is not well and some of it is very well and some of it is very attacky and some of it is very defensive and some of it is runaway and all these things. <laughs> and as you were saying that – and I mean Poppy's healthy. I hope we get him around for a lot longer. You know, He's only 90. But um, I was literally thinking how much just what I learned could be applied and if I could talk to my family about that now so that when it's time to start having those conversations – it's done without the stress of the trauma happening. Um, how much that might impact even that. That's really brilliant. Like I basically left the interview and was in my own world absorbing <laughs> what you said and applying it to my life as a non-zookeeper. I think that's amazing. Very cool. I'm glad you're so awestruck. I, I really am. I'm like, I'm like, you you guys keep talking. I'm gonna think. <laughs> it's also really noteworthy to know that like um you also change, like you figure out what 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 you do well and what you don't do well, and how you handle um, any kind of uh, trauma or um, animal death that leads into con- uh, compassion fatigue and everything. You learn more about yourself every time that it happens, uh, good, bad, ugly, whatever the case may be. It really is a learning experience for everybody involved. Um, but we always just try to take the good times. Cherish those as much as you can, but just know that they're never going to make the bad times disappear. Yeah, and then I guess another piece of advice for any other keepers listening is if you want to refer back to that lesson I I said I learned about humility this year, I know I'm not the only zookeeper out there who struggles with feeling possessive over not just your animals, but also possessive over your losses and your pain. And there's really nothing to be gained by proving that you're the one who's hurting the most. So you know, grieve the way that you need to grieve, grieve openly, but robbing someone else of their ability to grieve, it it doesn't really 
make you feel any better. So Mm -hmm. if you could take your focus off of that piece and just let it go and let them grieve how they need to grieve, I think you're going to find that you're less alone than you thought you were. People really do want to understand and you're going to find maybe some compassion and healing in places that you, that you least expected it. One thing that we really try to do, um, mine and Colleen specifically, but our entire department as a whole um, is whenever we do have another department that is suffering or going through something, we always try to send something to that other department as well, just to let them know that we are thinking about them and that our hearts go out to them anytime anything happens to one of their animals as well, just to let them know that they're not alone. Yeah, that's that's incredible. That that whole thing was so good. Y'all are the best. I love this so much. <laughs> um, is there anything else that either of you kind of want to hit on before we get to our conservation orgs and the obvious Rasafari poop story? Poop story. Tammy, what is your biggest training accomplishment? Let's do something real fun. Oh, my gosh. My biggest training accomplishment. Um, well, I taught a hippo to hop. I'm just kidding. <laughs> totally kidding. Jump rope. That is a total, that is a total joke from our AZAC group. Um, they'll get that one. Um, no, right now I'd say my biggest accomplishment is working with a red-tailed hawk that I've gotten completely off equipment. Um, having her crating herself and then going out to a lobby and having her hang out on a perch and everything and recreate herself to go back home. Um, it's still a work in progress since we're going into winter right now, but we've gotten really far and um, I know I've got other success stories. Oh, actually, my biggest success story that I feel like um, is back from when I was at Moore Park College, um, America's Teaching Zoo, and I was doing um, our Spring Spectacular with my Man Beaker, he's an Abyssinian ground hornbill, and we were supposed to, our stage show was going to be all animals, no people on stage, except for like the two security guards. And um, I felt really accomplished in the fact that I was able to get my hornbill to go out, jump on a table, fly across the stage, and then run back off stage to me without me ever getting on the stage. So um, really teaching a bird to do an entire series of events on a stage without you was Pretty spectacular. That is awesome. Kudos to Chain Behavior. Great job, Tammy. <laughs> um, also, real quick, one more thing, John. Um, Tammy mentioned Azac. You are our Azac president, I which am. might lead right into conservation nicely. Perfect. So I tell am. me what uh, made you want to be the Azac president and why you're so passionate about it. And Tammy's really awesome as our <laughs> Azac president. Um, I I don't know. I have always loved fundraising. Um when I was at Moore Park, I started our Boo at the Zoo, our Rendezvous at the Zoo event. And um, no, I did not start that one. Uh, no, Rendezvous. Yes, I did. Um, <laughs> sorry, just kidding. I started Rendezvous at the Zoo with a couple of other people. And we had a really, really successful year. Um, and it was the first time we'd ever done it. And they're still carrying on that legacy today, which I'm so spectac- uh, happy about. But I love doing fundraising for charities um, and for nonprofits. And so when I moved here to the zoo, um, the first year I was here, I started just going to the events and really trying to get involved. Um, and then the next year, I kind of started taking over the secretary role, and then I became vice president, and now I'm the president of our AZAC group. And it's just, it's meant so much to me just to be able to see um, how our community can come together to raise money to help out other nonprofits. Um, I'm excited to say that this is the third year in a row that our chapter has been the number one chapter for raising money for our Bowling for Rhinos. Nice. Um, it's been a hard couple of years with the pandemic and everything, but uh, we really do have the support um, of all of our followers and volunteers and everything like that. And it just brings me a lot of pride and joy to be able to know that I'm I'm making a little bit of a difference for species in the wild. Very cool. Love it. Um, are there any other than AZAC? Uh, are there any other conservation organizations that either of you would like to give a shout out to? Um, I'm going to give a shout out to the Sloth Institute. Yeah. So we do um, our tours. We send 20% of our money from our tours out to the Sloth Institute. And they're doing phenomenal work, um, not only with sloths, but all the other native species out there trying to help save them, uh, recover them, recoup them, uh, send them back out in the wild if they are releasable. You know, while we're talking about sloths, that brings up one quick question that I mean to, need to ask you. Um, I don't know why, but depending on where you look on on Cincinnati Zoo's social media, Mo is spelled with and without an E. It's with an E. Okay, I thought so. I've been, <laughs> I've been doing the E, but I've been a little annoyed because I went to check. And um, okay, so so M O E. M O E. Perfect. Did you want to add any other? Conservation things? Yeah. So um, Kids Saving the Rainforest also is down in Costa Rica, and they work with the Sloth Institute. Um, They work hand-in-hand a lot. If one 
one institution has more expertise in a certain area or whatnot, they'll work together. So um, both of them are an amazing follow on social media if you want just some like really cute baby animal content. And then just some real content also about what what life for these animals is like out in the wild. It's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show. But there's one tale left to go. You're gonna laugh and say, oh no. It's time for the Rossifari poop story. I have a poop story. Poop story. From today. Yes. <laughs> Fresh poop, y'all. Yes, exactly. So, um... We have a duck who is in the middle of getting laser therapy treatment right now for a upper leg um, soft tissue injury that he has. And so if you guys don't know what laser therapy is, it's literally a laser that they um, shoot at the skin or whatever area of the body needs to be healed. And so right now they're really working with his like hip and his upper joint and everything. And so while I am holding this duck very lovingly because he uh, has gotten to the point where he just kind of falls asleep while you're holding him, he got very relaxed and he uh, projectile pooped onto the laser machine. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, my goodness. Oh, Sheldon. <laughs> yep. Oh, Sheldon. <laughs> well, I think I actually have never told a poop story. Poop story. On here. I think I told a brain story mm-hmm. and a pee story. Mm-hmm. Okay, so poop for me. Um, shit for me. <laughs> um, We're going to get some more, Colleen. Shit for, for my shit. So I was... Um, cleaning the wallaby enclosure one time and I sat down to snuggle one of them and I was sitting there for a good long while. And then I stood up and, you know, walked, walked away and, um, former keeper Aaron O'Brien was like, Hey, I, I hate to say this, but I think maybe like you sat on something. She wasn't just meaning I like sat on poop. I had sat in a pool of diarrhea and I mean, it spanned like over a foot by a foot. Right on my butt. So it looked like the diarrhea was not the wallabies. Right, yes. But if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> I didn't have clean pants here. Oh, no. Amazing. Well, thank you both so much for doing this. This has been a blast. Thank you, you for it. having us. <laughs> yes, thanks for having us, John. It's so fun. <laughs> Okay, well, first of all, I mean, how amazing is Tammy, right? Like, what a cool story. What uh, just her sense of self and understanding of who she is is so impressive to me. And I just I loved that so much. And then, I mean, Colleen. Colleen is amazing. We all know this. Having the two of them together was such a treat. I'm not going to lie. This is one of my favorite episodes ever, in part because of what we talked about, in part because I always get excited about new people, but also get excited about having people back. And here I got both of that. But also it was just such a joy to record this episode. We had so much fun. We were so relaxed. I've I've known Tammy for a while. So like, We're buds. It was cool to do this. And obviously, Colleen and I have a great relationship. Um, One of my favorite memories of recording this is we were talking to Tammy about something, and we both had thoughts, and we both dove to the mic, and Colleen just threw her arm around my shoulder, and we were just, like, good friends, hanging out, having this great moment, sharing this passion that we love, and... Uh, it's, it's just, it was such a good day, y'all. And I was starting this road trip. It was day two. And yeah, I, I don't know. It was just, um, I highly recommend that y'all get yourselves some Tammy Wares and Colleen Adamses in your life. And while you may not be able to do that in person, or, or you may, I recommend starting a, a podcast. It worked well for me. Um, you can find them online. Tammy is at, at TammyWare1. That's T-A-M-I-W-A-R-E, then the number one. And Colleen is at Zookeeper Colleen. Of course, the Cincinnati Zoo can be found at CincinnatiZoo.org or at Cincinnati Zoo. And remember, friends, Trinterview Credits Backwards is Steiderk Wyvritnert. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley-Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. 
Ross Safari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.